Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. Hebrews 12, 18. Sinai or Zion. Two mountains are contrasted here. Sinai and Mount Zion. But which mountain is the better mountain? Which mountain is the mountain that we need? We need both, actually, in a sense. But where are we headed, ultimately? Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect." and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, this your holy word, we pray that you will teach us more from this holy word, that we might appreciate what you have done for us in the person and work of Christ. May he be exalted in our life, and may our love for him, our dedication to him, our zeal for Him, be even stronger based on what we learned today. Grant us your presence by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, what would you do if you were in the Garden of Eden before sin entered into the world? What would you have done? We know what Adam and Eve did, but what would you have done? If you had a perfect environment, abundance and grace, Everything that you could ever imagine and want, all the beauty of it, all the luxury of it, everything that was peaceful, calm, serene, everything that you would ever want in life was right there in the Garden of Eden. What would you do if you were presented with that? Or to say it another way, what would you do if you were alive during the personal public ministry of Jesus Christ? What would you have done? Would you have followed him Would you have learned from him? Would you have been so close to him that you would have observed his every word, heard his every word and observed his every action? And whenever he said anything, would you have had such zeal, such desire for obedience that you would believe everything he said and do everything he told you to do? How would you be? Because after all, God is right there in human flesh with a personal, visible, tangible example, you could touch him, you could bow down at his feet and worship the true and living God in human form right there in Jesus of Nazareth. What would you have done? Or let's look at it another way. What would you do if God were to place you right there at Mount Sinai? What would you do at Mount Sinai? If you were there with the people of Israel, having just left Egypt, gone into the desert, barren wilderness, and gone to this stony and dry, arid place in the the wilderness to this mountain called Sinai, and God were to say, prepare yourselves, 
because I'm going to reveal myself there to Moses and to all of you and give my words to you, what would you do? And when you see the thunder, the lightning, the smoke, the sound of the trumpet, the sounds of the words of God with a very thunderous, ominous voice with God speaking like that, what would you do? And also at the threat that if you came to the mountain too close, you deserve to die. Or if your animal wandered off and went to the mountain too close, it deserved to die. How would you feel with all of that? The earth quaking, the fire ablaze. What would you have done? Would you have had an attitude of complete surrender, submission, obedience, fear? Would you have been on your face before the Lord, seeing that sight and experiencing all of those phenomena? What would you have done? Or what would you do if God were to say, there is a day of judgment, and on that day of judgment, Christ will return in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Yes, in that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yes, that place is eternal. Yes, that place is a place of torment. Yes, we will have torment in our soul and in our bodies, physical bodies, resurrected bodies, thrown into that lake of fire where the devil and his angels will also go and all wicked people will go there forever and ever and ever, away from the Lord, away from the Lord Christ, away from peace and comfort and safety and into this place of anguish. What would you do? We all need to ask these questions of each other and of our loved ones. We have to ask this question of everybody in this world, actually. What would we do if we had the best of circumstances presented to us and even the worst of circumstances presented to us? What would we do? We have to have the right response, correct? So let's see what he's encouraging us to have here in our passage. Our passage, and actually the next passage at the end of the chapter, 25 to 29, are both related in that he presents us two scenarios in 18 to 24, two scenarios, and he's motivating us to pursue Christ as our mediator with these two scenarios. So the two scenarios are what God has provided, two contexts or settings he has provided for us. He's trying to encourage us to reject sin and to pursue righteousness. And the next time we will see that there are two outcomes, two consequences in verses 25 to 29 that are presented before us. Now first, let's see how he contrasts these two mountains in order to illustrate for us what responses we should have. Verse 18, For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible 
was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Now, when he tells his readers in verse 18, you have not come to such a mountain, when he says you have not come to such a mountain, well, that is true of everybody in the literal sense, except the sons of Israel out of the wilderness, correct? Because even all of the people of Israel did not go to Mount Sinai and experience this. So what is he contrasting? He's saying that those people at that time, they came to this mountain in order for God to make sure that these people understood his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his wrath, his fiery anger against sinners. That's what God was trying to tell the people that he was, that he was such a holy God that they needed to take his holiness seriously. And if they didn't take it seriously, then there would be punishment. But we, we haven't come to God in that way as though that's the dead end, that that's the end of it all. We haven't come to God in that way. That was a means for us to come to God. That was preparatory for us to come to God. We had to first, when we heard the true gospel, we had to hear about God's holiness, his righteousness, his punishment against unrepentant sinners. We needed to hear that. And that's what God is trying to tell the people of Israel. That's who he is. He's trying to tell us that when we understand the true gospel, first and foremost, we need to understand who God is in relation to our sin. And if we understand who God is in relation to our sin, then, and we properly believe that, imbibe that, then there's something beyond that that's even better. Better in that is beneficial to us for all eternity. So when God, or when the gospel was preached to us, however we heard the gospel, we did not come to a dead-end road that only spoke of mountains, untouchable mountains, blazing fire, darkness, gloom, whirlwind, blast of trumpet, sound of ominous words. So much so that the people said, no, we don't want to hear those words anymore because those words terrify us. The sound of those words and the content of those words terrify us so much we don't want to hear them with our own ears. Moses, you go. You go close to God because we know you're a holy man. You're a man of God. You go. God has chosen you to be his prophet. So you go and you get close to God and hear his words, these words and the sounds that would come when Moses heard the words of God. You come like that or go like that to, the, to God and then you come back and you tell us what God told you and we'll listen to you because we know already we've had a taste of God's holiness. Now, by the way, in reference to God being this way, the New Testament, in many, many places, such as our passage, describes our God in the same way. Just to take uh, an example from John chapter 12. John chapter 12. 12, 27. John 12, 27. The sound of words. The sound of words. Even when God the Father spoke to Christ in John chapter 12, verse 27, notice what it says about the sound of the words. 12, 27. 
Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. There came therefore a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Whose words are those? The words of the Father, right? Verse 29. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. They thought it had thundered. At least some of them thought it had thundered. Why? Because God the Father was speaking to his own Son. So if we were to hear the voice of God the Father, it would sound like thunder. And that's a terrifying sound, is it not? That's the way the God is of the New Testament. When we preach the gospel, we must understand God to be this way, that we cannot come near him, we cannot approach him, we could not tolerate listening to his words unless it were by his grace that he prevents any of these punishments for transgressing his commandments would happen to us instantly. Now, when we think of just this one aspect of the sound of God's words, how is it then that many people claim today that God speaks to them, but God, whenever people say, speaking of false prophets, when God speaks to them, how is it that they never ever say, it was a very terrifying voice, it was a thunderous voice, it was a booming voice, and I thought I was going to die instantly because I heard the voice of God. The false prophets never say that. They always say it was a sweet voice. It was a gentle voice. It was a kind voice. Yes, God may speak that way. But if God is holy and we are unholy, how is it that it's always the case that God never speaks in a thunderous voice? No, that can't be true. Something is amiss there with these prophets who claim to hear the word of God. In fact, we should be very thankful that we don't always hear God's thunderous voice against us and against our sin. Notice in, in verse 20, 20 and 21, they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. They said, God is really serious here. This innocent beast who wanders off looking for food, some vegetation here or there to go eat in a barren place, the beasts are going out, and here, he's saying, it's so serious, I, don't, I want you to understand, I want to illustrate, your sin, if you sin, is in relation to these beasts. And if you don't take care of yourself and take care of these beasts properly, I will hold you both accountable. Which concept should not surprise us? Because when Adam and Eve sinned, their sin did not just impact themselves, but impacted the beasts, Right? Because of their sin, the first animals died in Genesis 3.21. God made garments of skin for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. God offered the first sacrifice, and he clothed them with the skin of the animals. So the beast died because of the sin of man. So our sin is in relation to the rest of creation. And even the plants and the vegetation of the earth, they, they come and go, and weeds come up because of our sin. So it's the same way here. What we do is not just in relation to ourselves, it is in relation to all the people around us. In other words, sin is not 
merely personal and isolated. Sin in our life, even if it's our secret sins that nobody else knows, our, our secret sins that go on in our mind that we have never told anybody, even those sins inside of our mind, they do have an impact on someone else because they impact our values, they impact our words, they impact our actions. When we're thinking those sinful thoughts, we're not thinking righteous thoughts, good thoughts that benefit ourselves and benefit others. So even those thoughts that no one has ever heard, but we know, everything has an impact on someone else. This is the way holiness is, or even wickedness is. Holiness benefits others, and even wickedness impacts or affects other people. And that's why we need to be concerned, firstly, to understand our sin in reference to God's holiness. And 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Now, this is a paraphrase of Deuteronomy 9.19. Deuteronomy 9.19, where Moses also recounts what he thinks about the holiness of God, that he is full of fear and trembling at the thought of the holiness of God. Whether that holiness is manifested when the Ten Commandments were delivered from Exodus 19 and 20, or even later in chapter 32, in Exodus 32, when Moses was on the mountain too long for the people, the impatient people, they said, Aaron, make for us a god of gold, a calf, and let's worship this because we don't know what happened to Moses. He's been on the mountain so long. So at that time, when they transgressed the holiness and righteousness of God, Moses was concerned about what was going to happen to all the people. And that's why he says here, I am full of fear and trembling. When Moses thinks about the holiness of God, he is full of fear and trembling. Now, was Moses sinning when he was full of fear and trembling? No. If Moses was not sinning as a holy man of God, if he was not sinning, when he contemplated the holiness of God, being full of fear and trembling, shouldn't we be full of fear and trembling? When we contemplate the holiness of God? He teaches us in Hebrews chapter 10, in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's teaching us that we need to properly think about the holiness and righteousness and judgment of God, and to have proper fear and trembling as a result. Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, 
should characterize the Christian life. Philippians 2, 12. Philippians 2, 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here he teaches us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling, the same as we read in Hebrews 12, the same that we read in other places. Fear and trembling are characteristic of the Christian life when we are working out our salvation, demonstrating our salvation, evidencing or bearing fruit in relation to our salvation, not working for our salvation, but working out our salvation. It is characterized by fear and trembling. Two more examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We have these promises, which are good and wonderful promises of God's presence with us, of our redemption. And as beloved of God, loved by the wonderful, immense love of God, he says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Everything that makes us impure or defiles us in our bodies and spirits, let's get rid of them. And at the same time, perfect holiness in the fear of God. Perfect holiness in the fear of God. We'll never become completely holy, but we should progress in that direction. We should progress in that direction. People say, well, if we can't be perfectly holy now, then why try? Because God commanded us. That's why we're supposed to do it simply because he commanded us to do it. And besides that, we will increase, we will gradually, we will progressively grow in holiness, perfect holiness. We are going to that goal, and when we see Christ face to face, we will reach that goal, 100%. And think about it in another way. Whether you, let's take a speed limit. If speed limits are always on the roads, right? We are supposed to not, never exceed the speed limit, right? We're supposed to stay up to the limit, right? The laws teach us to do that, right? So if we're supposed to keep the speed according to the speed zone, wherever we are, if it rises or falls, wherever we are, we're supposed to keep it. Should we say we should just get rid of all the signs because nobody can keep it? Because nobody can keep it? No. We're supposed to strive to keep it. And to the extent that we are successful in striving to keep it, it benefits us and it benefits others. It keeps us safe and it keeps others safe. It causes us to love our neighbor as ourself. And if we love our neighbor as ourself, we love God. So we should keep the speed. Even if we cannot perfectly do it, every single time we are behind the wheel of a car. We should do it. We can use this example in all kinds of other areas of life too. We should do what we can 
because to the extent that we can, it does glorify God and it does benefit us and benefit one another. And then one more example, 2 Corinthians 7, 7, 15. 7.15. Speaking here of sending one of his messengers, this was Titus, Paul sent Titus and he commends them in 2 Corinthians 7.15. He says, And his affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. The Corinthians are commended. They are commended by the Apostle Paul for receiving Paul's messenger Titus because they received him with fear and trembling. They took him to be a man of God, a disciple, a brother, one beloved of God. They received him that way. They treated him well. They treated him with fear and trembling. That was an outflow of what they believed about God. What they believed about God was in their life, and then it flowed out of their belief, and they treated another brother in Christ with fear and trembling. So it wasn't only that Moses and the people of Israel had fear and trembling. We should also. Now, Having considered the holiness, righteousness, justice, judgment of God as a motivation to pursue the things of God, now he turns his attention to Mount Zion. In the scriptures, Mount Zion, just as we read in Psalm 97, Psalm 97 contrasts, in a way, the events of Mount Sinai with also Mount Zion. And in the scriptures, Mount Zion is a symbol is an illustration of the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the superabundance of God. Because Mount Zion is one of the mountains in Jerusalem. And when were they able to experience the land of Canaan and make Jerusalem their capital and have Mount Zion as one of the mountains by which they were able to reign and rule and enjoy the benefits of the land of Canaan? After God gave them conquest of the land of Canaan, right? That's when they eventually made their way to Jerusalem, made Jerusalem their capital, and Jerusalem or Mount Zion, that that became an example, the epitome of the goodness and grace of God because they inherited a land that they did not deserve. They inherited a land by the power of God and the wisdom of God, not based on their own strength and might, but based on what God gave them um, in their, their conquest of the land. He gave them victory over their enemies. So then he gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. It had a, an abundance of crops and harvests that they could enjoy. They could enjoy it at the first when they didn't even labor for it because it was so abundant there that when they conquered their enemies, they had plenty to eat and drink. Plenty of everything that they could imagine there in the land of Canaan. This is why in the scriptures, in terms of an illustration, Mount Zion is used. But also, Mount Zion in the Bible is an example of what heaven is like. Hebrews chapter 4 compares the land of Canaan to the eternal Sabbath rest we have with God in heaven. The land of Canaan 
is an example of heavenly rest. It's an example of a heavenly Jerusalem, of a heavenly Zion, where there is perfection of all the things that we might imagine away from sin and the present, sweet presence of God forever and ever. That's what Zion is in the Bible. Galatians chapter 4 is an example, again, where the scripture makes a contrast such as we are studying here. If you want to study Galatians chapter 4, he, the apostle there explains similar to what is going on here. This difference between Sinai and Zion or Jerusalem. Now, the fear of God is one motivation to draw us to know God and to obey God. But now, the grace of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God is another motivation for us in the scriptures to want this gospel of Christ, to want to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And that begins at verse 22. 22 to 24, he heaps examples, a series of examples to motivate us to pursue those eternal things that he has given us. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, right? We didn't go to Sinai and stay there as though that were the dead end street. But Sinai is meant to take us to Zion. Sinai is a step along the way to eventually get to the land of Canaan where Zion is. Just as justice and righteousness of God, when we understand it, it is meant to drive us to the goodness and grace of God. So we come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. At Mount Zion, this city or this mountain is the place of the living God, not the idols of the world, not the pantheons of the world, not the innumerable hosts of gods and goddesses that the world worships. And they worship that either in graven images or in the things that they possess or the ideas that they have, the philosophies that they con construct or concoct and speculate in the world. We don't worship a God like that. We worship the living God, the true God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who gave us the scriptures, the God who sent his one and only son, the only begotten son to come into the world to pay the penalty for our sins if we believe in him. This is the living God. So this living God should never be equated to dead, lifeless idols who have ears but do not see who have ears but do not hear, who have mouths but they cannot speak. Those who worship them will become like them. We give up on our idols now because we have the living and true God for our God. We have come to know him. We are privileged to know him. Our eyes have been opened because we worship a God who gave us these eyes, not an idol that cannot really see, We've come now also to the heavenly Jerusalem. Heavenly Jerusalem. We do not believe the things we believe because we think that this world is all. If this world is all, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we may die. That's what the pagans say. The scriptures quote the pagans saying, well, okay, well, if that's the way it happens, if we die and that's all, we cease to exist, we are annihilated, we uh, arrive at extinction, extinctionism, 
that there's no more life beyond this life, if that's it, or if we will come back into this world because there is no life in terms of eternal life, whether we believe one or the other, whatever the case is, that is denying the fact that there is a heavenly Jerusalem. Eternal life is in the future. Things unseen are in the future. Things unimaginable are in the future. Everything that we have as a foretaste now is there in abundance in the life to come. And when I say everything, I don't mean the, the pleasures of the world. What I mean is that what we have tasted in Christ, we have a new heart. We have a desire to worship God. We have a desire to please God. We have a desire to get rid of sin in our life. All of these will come to fruition in this heavenly Jerusalem. The place and the circumstance where we will be, not because of our goodness, but because of the righteousness and goodness of Christ reckoned to our account. We have heavenly things to enjoy, not the worldly and earthly and base and fleshly things of this life. They are only used, this life, the things of this life are only used to the extent that they help us to proceed to our heavenly goal but they should not be worshipped. Furthermore, we have come to myriads of angels. Myriads of angels. When he says myriads of angels or innumerable angels, these angels are not fallen angels. We're not talking about Satan and the demons. When we're talking about angels, we are talking about the glorious ones, the brilliant ones, the ones that are the chosen angels of 1 Timothy 5, 21. We're talking about those angels that are around the throne of God in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, those angels that are constantly glorifying, worshiping and praising, giving thanks to the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the God of heaven, where, where we will once dwell also. One time it will happen to us and we will be there with them forever and ever. We will be with the angels forever. Now think about that. If we were to encounter an angel here on earth, such as the Apostle Paul, uh, excuse me, the Apostle John did in the book of Revelation, an angel was the mediator or the means, the messenger to deliver the oracles of the book of Revelation to John the Apostle. The presence of this angel was so awesome to John that he lost his proper thinking capacities and he fell down to worship the angel. That's how glorious the angel was when he revealed the word to John the Apostle. So can you imagine? We will be in the presence of myriads of angels, innumerable angels, countless angels. This is the kind of context or circumstance we will enjoy forever and ever. Not with the wicked and not with the fallen ones, but with the glorious ones. Verse 23 23, he gives two names, two names of the people of heaven to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. General assembly and church of the firstborn. A general assembly, in speaking of this, he's not speaking of a small group, he's speaking of a big group. That's why he's calling it the general assembly when all of the people of God will be there together. And according to Revelation 7, verse 9, 
I saw a great multitude in heaven which no one could count, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They were there. This is what he means by the general assembly. This general assembly is similar to the myriads of angels. They are uncountable, innumerable, countless uh, people there in heaven, as innumerable as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. We are going to be in that great company. Mind you also, when he says general assembly and church of the firstborn, he's talking about the same group. You might hear a false doctrine in, uh, in uh, many circles in evangelical Christianity called dispensationalism. In dispensationalism, it teaches that God has one eternal plan for ethnic Israel, the nation of Israel, the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the 12 tribes, that God has one eternal plan for them, a different way of salvation for them. It does not have to be based on Christ. It's not based on Christ. They don't have to believe in Christ. A different eternal plan of salvation for them. So that is one group that's called the people of God. And then they say there's another group, the church. That is the Gentile church. That's you and me. Most of us now are Gentiles in the church. And God has another eternal plan of salvation for us. And that's based on faith in Christ. So for all eternity, two parallel lines, one for Israel and one for the church. But we can't have that. Not according to this verse and many other places. We cannot have that because the general assembly, it's called a general assembly, not a restricted assembly, not a partial assembly. It's a general assembly. That is, all the people are there. Think of it in terms of a conference. Sometimes we, when we go to a conference, there will be a big room in the building of a conference where everybody is seated there, right? That's the general assembly. We're not talking about the side rooms for the breakout sessions where you might have a room of 10 or 25 people in those small rooms. We're not talking about compartments like that where Israel is on one side and the church is on the other side and somehow in the middle, the, nobody crosses between the, the, the hallways in order to get from one place to the other. It's not like that. There's no concept like that in the Bible. The general assembly, that means every Jew who believes in Christ and every Gentile who believes in Christ, every rich man, every poor man, every male, every female, every old man, every young man, every old woman, every young woman, it doesn't matter. Whoever believes, we are all in one assembly together. And we're, we are also called the church. Church of the firstborn. Uh, the word church in the scripture is, has, the, has to do with those who are called out. Called out of the world and called together as the people of God for the purpose of worshiping and glorifying God. That's who we are. We are the church. We are called out of the world, no longer to be like the world, no longer in our old ways. Now we have our new ways. We have a new heart, a new life, a life in Christ. Now, this church in Christ is also called the church of the firstborn. When he says church of the firstborn, in your Bible and in English, it's not clear most often. It's not clear. When we say firstborn, the word in English has a singular form, right? Firstborn. It has a singular form. 
So according to context for English, we might be speaking of one person, the firstborn son or the firstborn daughter, firstborn child. We might be speaking of firstborn like that. But also even in English, if we wanted to have a plural sense of firstborn, such as God killed all the firstborn of Egypt. We don't mean one. We mean many, many, right? Many, many people and many, many animals, firstborn. But in English, it's the same word. It's not firstborns or some other way we could pluralize the word. So in this case, when he says church of the firstborn, in English, it's unclear. But in the original language, it's plural. Because in the Greek language, they have a way to distinguish this word as singular and plural. And in this case, it happens to be plural. So in the Greek language, it's absolutely clear he's talking about all of us are considered firstborn of God. All of us, male, female, whoever is in Christ, we are considered firstborn. Now, why does he use this word? You may remember we mentioned earlier in chapter 12, chapter 12 and verse 7, that he disciplines us as sons, right? He calls us sons. In verse 5, in verse 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, he calls us sons. And I said at that time, he calls us sons because in the scripture, the son was the one who inherited the possessions of his father. So, in the scriptures, God the Father adopts us into his family, and all of us in the church, we are considered his firstborn in that metaphor, because all of us will inherit eternity. All of us. Inherit that which we do not deserve. Inherit that which our Heavenly Father chose us to inherit. We will inherit all of that. That's why he, we are called here the church of the firstborn. We are all considered firstborn in terms of redemption and salvation. Further, verse 23 says, we are enrolled in heaven. Enrolled in heaven. God has the book of the uh, book of life. It's the book of life or the book of, uh, of the Lamb of God. He is the one who has redeemed us and our names are recorded in heaven. Metaphorically speaking, God doesn't need to have a huge book in, in which he writes down each name like that. But metaphorically speaking, um, uh, in terms of a, a metaphor or example, he's saying it's like God has a book there where every single name is. So all of our names are there. And why is he telling us that? He said we're, we're going to Mount Zion the heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels, general assembly, church of the firstborn, but we're enrolled in heaven. Why does he tell us that we are enrolled in heaven? Because God is a God who does not change. I, the Lord, do not change, Malachi 3, 6. Or Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. God is unchanging. So if God has recorded our names in heaven, is he going to then start taking the eraser or, or start taking uh, whiteout 
and start erasing and taking away our names from heaven and then throwing them out of heaven and throwing them into hell. No, the Bible doesn't understand that or teach that concept at all. There's no understanding like that in the Bible. If our names are recorded in heaven, then they are fixed. They are fixed. They are sure. There is certainty. There is assurance. And he tells us this to encourage us, to comfort us, to assure us that God is taking care of us when we truly come to Christ. If we know Christ, we are enrolled in heaven. And he will not blot out our names. He will not erase our names from the book of life. We are there forever and ever. Don't let anybody take that away. Further, verse 23, and we come to God. And who is this God? The judge of all. We come to God himself, the judge of all. And here I believe he's speaking of God the Father because he mentions in verse 24 that we also come to Jesus, who is the Son of God. So in 23, when he says we come to God, the judge of all, he's teaching us that the only way to this great and awesome God, the creator of the universe, the one who provides for everything we need, who adopts us into the family of God, we come to him. We come to him. This, the awesome privilege, the sweet privilege, the exclusive privilege of coming to him. Many, many people think that they can come to God, whoever this God is, the supreme God, by any means whatsoever. No, we cannot. We know from our, our lessons here in Hebrews, the only way to come to God, the supreme God, the God of gods, is to come to him through Christ. If we come to Christ, we come to the Father. And now we have this privilege here of coming to God himself, God the Father. This is the only way to God the Father. If we come in this manner. It does not do to say that people are sincere in their beliefs. Many sincere people have encountered tragedies, traumas, distresses and afflictions. Sincerity doesn't make something right. It doesn't make something right. We must come to this God. Now who is this God? The judge of all. Notice here, the judge of all. Even though he has told us in 18 to 21, we're not going to experience his wrath. We're not going to that mountain as though that mountain is the end of everything. We're going further than Sinai to Zion. Even when we go to Zion, we have to consider God the Father as the judge of all. Because meantime, in our Christian life, we must follow his ways. We must obey him. We must know his will and do his will and seek to do those things which are pleasing in his sight. This is what he teaches us as well in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Well, actually, let's begin at verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. Verse 9, whether we're home or absent, we are, our intention is to be pleasing to him. That's our ambition or intention, to be pleasing to him. Why, whether we are here or in heaven, why are we always to be pleasing to him? Because of verse 10. Because we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, whether according to what he has done, whether good or evil. All of us are going to be held accountable on that day. Yes, we have no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. However, there is judgment yet to come as to the way we have lived our Christian life. And when we come and meet Christ and the Father on that day of judgment, he will ask us, he will expect of us to have faithfulness in our life. You remember when Jesus shared the parable of the talents of money, the talents of money in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew 25, when he shared that, there were three slaves who handled their money while the master was gone. They handled their money differently. One of the slaves, well, let's read and pick up after. Uh, we'll begin at verse uh, 14, 25, 14. Matthew 25, 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his way. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with the few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master." The one also who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground, and see, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away, and cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Christ is here explaining on the day of judgment, when he returns as the master, that there will be a couple of slaves who were true disciples, true slaves, faithful 
and righteous slaves who did the will of their master. But one slave was given five talents of money and the other two talents of money. The one that had five made five more and he had ten. And then he received the one talent from the wicked slave. So he had eleven in the end. Then the two, he received his just reward for being faithful with his two talents. So two examples. And notice, Christ or the master did not give the same gifts or the same amount of gifts to both of those slaves. And the slaves had to be faithful with whatever was given to them. And then they were judged accordingly. But the one wicked slave, he was a false slave. He was a pretender. He was unfaithful. And this is the way it is also in the church, in the visible church. That there are those who are not actually true believers. And they show forth that by not wanting to do the will of the master. And then using as a pretext, well, I didn't know what to do. I was so afraid about what might happen. So I just didn't do anything. But here's what you gave me. I didn't steal it. At least I didn't steal it, master. But the master will say, you wicked, lazy slave. At the very least, you could have put the money in the bank so that it earned interest. If you didn't want to work so hard as the other two, at least you could have put the money in the bank. You could have done something. But because you were unwilling to do anything, you are judged as an unbeliever and thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, God is a God of justice. Back to Hebrews 12.23. Further, in Hebrews 12.23, he says, And to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, or the righteous made perfect. He's talking about whoever has been made perfect. Now, why would he tell us this? Because this group, I believe, is the same group as what he said, the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven. Why does he now return to this subject and say, righteous men made perfect, the spirits of righteous men made perfect, in order to encourage us further? Isn't it, isn't it an affliction? Isn't it a, dis- a distress to us when we come across tribulations, trials, afflictions, uncertainties in this life? When we come across sin, our own sin and the sin of others. We come across evil. We come across tragedies. We see all of the ways in which evil people can treat each other and do treat each other in this world. Then what do we long for? We long to be released from all this. We long for perfection. So he's encouraging us that a time of perfection will come. A time of peace and harmony will come. A time will come when there won't be any of these things anymore. Second Peter, Second Peter three thirteen, Second Peter three thirteen. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Complete perfection, as He's saying in Hebrews. Perfection will be there. The spirits of righteous men have already been made perfect as a deposit of what will happen on the day of resurrection. Revelation chapter 21, 
21, verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. 21, 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the Lamb of God, or excuse me, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There's the analogy again of inheritance. Inheritance and son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So what is it that the spirits of the righteous made perfect in joy? They enjoy this in their spirits in that they don't have to wipe away tears anymore. They don't have to experience death anymore. They don't mourn anymore. They don't cry anymore. They have no more pains. Everything is new. They have been made perfect. And that's what will happen to us. And then finally, in Hebrews 12, 24, he says, he directs us to the one who has made all this possible. 12, 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We have come to Jesus. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the, the author and perfecter of faith. He is the one who makes this all possible. And notice there, he says Jesus. Why does he say Jesus? Perhaps for a couple of reasons he says Jesus. When we think of the name Jesus, we think of the incarnation because Jesus is known as Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus of Nazareth, he was brought up in that, that town of Nazareth. So when we think of his incarnation, what's associated with his incarnation? His per perfect ministry, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his shed blood on our behalf. I think this is why he speaks of Jesus here instead of saying the Son of God or something else. Jesus, because of his incarnation, what he did on our behalf. Furthermore, the name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. So the, Jesus means the Lord is salvation. He is our salvation. There is no salvation without him, without faith in him, knowledge of him, belief in him, nothing is possible without him. Only him. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony born at the proper time. 
1 Timothy 2, 4 to 6. There is only one Jesus or, and one way of salvation. It's only in him. Now, he calls him here the mediator of a new covenant. The mediator of a new covenant. He has spoken of his mediation on our behalf earlier, a couple of times earlier. He spoke of it in chapter 8. For example, chapter 8, verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. He's the mediator of a better covenant than the covenant of Moses because this covenant is the basis for our salvation. Hebrews 9.15, Hebrews 9.15. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. Those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So he is the mediator of a new covenant. And being the mediator of the new covenant, when he died on the cross, he, his shed blood was for us. It was for our benefit. Notice here, in Hebrews 12, 24, and these other places in Hebrews, the new covenant has as its basis or its, its enactment. It was established. It was um, set in motion. It was ordained. It was um, sanctified by the blood of Christ. Does it not say that in verse 24? The mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, the blood of Christ figuratively sprinkled to us, sprinkled in that the people are there and the blood of Christ is sprinkled upon them so that they are redeemed by that blood. And notice, when the Bible says that it is the blood of Christ that redeems us, it's saying that, as he's been saying throughout this letter, not the animals, not the animals, not in the Old Testament for the animals and not now for the animals. Because even some Jews today and some Gentiles today, in fact, who are following some of the Jews of today, they think that it's the death of an animal, even today, that saves them from sin. And they practice, they try to practice in, in one way or another something along the lines of the sacrifices and the festivals of the Old Testament because they think they must do that in order to be saved. So in the Old Testament, Moses never taught that it was the blood of the animal that saved him. David never believed that it was the blood of the animal. Abraham never believed it was the blood of the animal. And Adam never believed it was the blood of the animal that saved them. It was the blood of the animal that signified the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. It was the Lamb of God, his own blood sprinkled on our behalf. That is what saves us. Furthermore, the Bible here calls it the new covenant. New covenant. In the Old Testament, there's only one place where this phrase, new covenant, is found. It's found in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Only one place. Otherwise, the Bible calls it the covenant of peace or the everlasting covenant, 
the eternal covenant. These are different words to describe this same new covenant. So why would the Bible call it new? Why would it call it new? I believe it calls it new to contrast it with the old covenant. The old covenant that Moses enacted or Moses delivered to the people, this old covenant was intended to show the people their old ways. The old covenant was intended to show the people their old ways, their old nature, the old man, the corrupt man, in other words. It's intended to bring it out, to bring it to the surface. Isn't that what we read earlier from Isaiah 42, 21? The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to make the law great and glorious. Galatians 3.19 says, Why the law then? Paul's answer, It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. Moses delivered the law to the people by the word of the Lord to show the people their old ways, their old nature, their sinful ways, to have many examples of how they could not and would not keep the laws of God. So the new covenant, what will that do? The new covenant, in contrast to that, what does it do? It signifies, or it is the basis of our new heart, the new man, the new creation, the new self, the new person that we are, the new spirit that God's given us. He has taken away our insensitive and stony heart. He's taken away that and given us a heart of flesh. That's what he's done, according to Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. So in this way, the new covenant is called the new covenant. It's new because it is the basis of our new heart. It's the basis of our new heart. For example, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, and notice Revelation 5, 9. Revelation 5, 9. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Who is that? Who is he describing there in verse 9? He's describing you and me, correct? Or they are describing you and me. John the Apostle uh, is describing us in this book. He's describing what has happened to us, and we are purchased, how? Because Christ was slain. He was slain. Verse 8 calls him the Lamb. The Lamb was slain on our behalf to purchase us and to make us a kingdom and priests. And what is this song called? A new song. I don't think it's called a new song. I don't think it's called a new song because it's new chronologically speaking. Because in that sense, every song after the first song that ever existed in the world should be called a new song. Right? 
Because every time there's a, 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 somebody composes a song, we should call it a new song. But it's not always called a new song. Because even when we play old songs of 30, 40, 50 years ago, we call them oldies or old songs or something like that. So why does the Bible still call this a new song or the new covenant? Why does it call it the new covenant? Or why does it call it new in relation to us? Because it is the basis for our new heart. And in, with the new heart, he has redeemed us. He showered his grace upon us. He's given us everything that is uh, necessary for our eternal life, forgiveness of sins, salvation, glory, perfection. Everything we have and everything we need is based on this blood of Christ to give us this new life in Christ. And further, and lastly he says, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. It speaks better than the blood of Abel. And by this, actually, he has come full circle to what he introduced in verses 18 to 21. The blood of Abel, I believe he means the martyr's blood of Abel. When Abel's blood was shed, do you remember what God said to Cain when God was uh, attempting to get a confession out of Cain and Cain wouldn't confess? God said, the blood of your brother Abel is crying out from the ground. Meaning that justice needed to be meted out because you shed, you Cain shed innocent blood and I know his blood is on the ground and it doesn't deserve to be there and you deserve to be punished. You deserve to receive justice. You Cain and all of us in, in a sense. We all deserve justice. But the blood of Christ will not give us justice. The blood of Christ gives us mercy. The blood of Christ gives us grace. The blood of Christ gives us new life and eternal life. In that sense, it's better than the blood of Abel. Not that the blood of Abel was worthless or useless and there's no lesson to learn, but in contrast to the blood of Christ, the blood of Abel was crying out for justice. The blood of Christ is crying out and offering mercy to us, eternal life to us. That's the way in which Jesus' blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. Because whatever justice we deserve, we don't get it. We get mercy because of Christ our Lord and Savior. Let us then understand who God is in relation to not only his holiness and justice, but his love and mercy, especially as we look at the face of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll teach us this more and more. May we not be concerned about the things of the world. Teach us to overcome sin the closer we are to Christ. And may he mean everything to us. We ask in his name. Amen.